I'm kind of a, I'm thoroughly prepared for the first um, 11 verses and then somewhat prepared for the next up to verse uh, 22, 23. Uh, so we'll see how it goes. I, I don't want to step into a place that I'm not squared away on. I feel pretty good about it. I don't feel like there's any curveballs there. Um, but we're not going to finish the chapter tonight. We might get Lot out of Sodom, and we might actually have the destruction. Um, but Lot won't get to the last part of the chapter yet, for sure. I'd like to read the chapter, at least uh, the first 22 verses together. Uh, I'll go ahead and destroy, we'll destroy it, verse 29 verses, in just kind of one big snapshot. And then we'll climb into it and low crawl verse by verse or a few verses at a time. Let me begin with prayer tonight. <clears throat> Lord, we just counted a sweet privilege to climb into the Word. We are delighted that there's no such thing as routine or mundane when we are stepping into uh, the pages of truth and life and pages that reveal you, words that explain you movements that uh, show your character and this incredible gospel and they give uh, images and shape and uh, sounds and smells that we can touch it and feel it and we can climb into it. Lord, I pray that you'll find us climbing into it tonight. I pray that we will um, smell the sulfur, that we'll feel the grasp of grace at the hands of uh, the angels jerking um, Lot and his family out of Sodom. Uh, Lord, I pray that we'll just see your sweet picture of mercy that you've provided us in this passage and judgment, both in the same context. We love you, Lord. Uh, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the ultimate foot washing in the cross. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'll just say a brief comment about the, the uh, shepherd's guide. I don't know if y'all are... I never really know who's doing it. Uh, we're doing it, so if anything, it's a good guide for me and my family. It kind of gives us a direction of where we want to go over the course of the week. And I encourage you, even if you haven't done that, it's not too late to start doing that. And if you're not doing, it's not like you have to do that. But I encourage you to have a system, to have some sort of journey that you're going on, that you're taking your family through. That one makes sense because it connects with what where we're going as people on Sundays. Um, you know, so it helps flesh out some things that we engage on Sundays to where they actually find a home. You know, some of it's repetitious. In fact, every day this week during the Shepherd's Guide, we're reading John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, or at least 1 through 7, every single day. But that's the beauty of the Word. Is I had a great conversation with, or a great teaching moment with the kids a few, it was probably a couple of years ago by now, where I, we asked them what they learned in their Bible study that morning at corporate worship. And uh, they kind of complained because it was a story they already knew. Yeah, we already know that story. And I was like, wait a second, this is a teachable moment. It's not a collection of data. <laughs> this book is not just a collection of facts that we kind of digest and that we categorize and that we can even go grab when we need it. It is access into a relationship with the living God. And you may approach a single story a thousand times 
And a thousand times it'll be afresh and anew. And that's why this book is different from Shakespeare. Or War and Peace, or I don't know, thinking of big books that you can engage and maybe read over and over again. It's different. It's living. And it's active. And that's why um, I just encourage you, repetition is such a wonderful thing because you come back and you hit things over and over again. You see things that you didn't see before. Uh, this week, I've starting on Tuesday morning, I've committed to wash each, each of the feet of the family members. So I'll finish up with Christy on Friday. And Christy's reading the passage and uh, while we're washing feet. And this morning, I had Luke go stomp around in the yard. And actually, in the shepherd's yard, I was supposed to have the dirty, dirty feet. But I had Luke do it instead because I was going to wash his feet. So Luke stomped around in the yard and just came in with just caked mud. I mean, he followed orders. I told him to get his feet dirty. And he came in looking like uh, just gobs of mud. But he thankfully only took a couple steps into the den, and I had a little place set up for him. And we read the passages that really talk about our dirt, like Romans 3.23, all have sinned and all fall short. Like Romans 3, no one's righteous, no, not one. Our mouths or throats are an empty grave. I mean, these sort of passages that we were, as David says in Psalm 51, that we were born in iniquity, conceived in sin. You know, the best we have to offer is filthy rags. Um, you know, passage after passage that points to our true condition, that amplifies and exposes our dirt, that no one's righteous, no, not one. So we dealt with the issue that every toe on every foot, if we can let dirty feet be an image of our condition regarding God, every toe on every foot is dirty. And that through the cleansing work of the cross that the only detergent that handles that sin, the blood of Jesus, that that's reckoned with. And uh, it's those sort of images. We had just the sweetest time together this morning. And, you know, I encourage, I know y'all have crazy schedules. You know, we, between homeschooling and just kind of having a little bit different schedule, I know that I've got access to my kids in a way that you may not. You may have to work harder at it. But that doesn't mean that you just bail on it. It means you work harder at it. And they don't have access to me at times where y'all have access to me. So it's a trade-off. I encourage you, you, you may be more concentrated in the evenings and uh, in the weekends when they don't see very much of me, that you can really invest in your children and walk in these areas. And not just in your children. You don't have to have children to do this. I encourage husbands to invest in their wives. Have your wife go out and get her feet dirty. You know, wash her feet. And enjoy the, the gospel and enjoy the truth of uh, the beauty, beautiful illustration that this foot washing is. It's worth savoring. Let's go to Genesis 19. <clears throat> Some things to look for, and then I'm going to read the passage together. Some things to look for in this chapter is a demonstration of wickedness of Sodom. That's the first D. The second D is the deliverance of Lot. And the third D is the destruction of and devastation of the region, okay? Demonstration of wickedness of Sodom, deliverance of Lot, and devastation of the region. Some contrast that I encourage you to look for as you are looking ahead to this chapter is contrast between Lot and Abraham, that Abraham is sitting at the tent, the, the entrance to his tent, waiting for visitors. Lot, on the other hand, you need somebody? Okay. Lot, on the other hand, is sitting at the entrance to a city. We'll kind of kind of deal with the contrast there a little bit tonight. Abraham is complete in his devotion to God, and Lot appears to be complete in his devotion to city life. You'll see that amplified tonight. Abraham is the model host, 
And Lot is kind of a buffoon. He's not so smooth in his hosting as Lot was, I mean, as Abraham was. Abraham feeds the visitors the finest. I mean, their version of backstrap, they get the best. And then uh, Lot, on the other hand, we know that, they, that he served a feast, but the narrator, the only details he gives us is that they had unleavened bread, which is cheap and easy. It's like a microwave meal. Abraham has skill in reasoning with God, and Lot is feeble in reasoning even with his own family members. His sons-in-law are soon-to-be sons-in-law. That's right, it's difficult to know whether his daughters are married or not. It doesn't look like they're married yet, but his sons-in-law are referred to as sons-in-law already, which may say something about the gravity of betrothal at this time, that just being engaged was almost as if it's a done deal. But his own sons-in-law, or future sons-in-law, won't even listen to him. They think he's joking. He's such a funny man, that lot. He's such a jokester. Abraham pleads for the righteousness of Sodom and Gomorrah, or for the righteous of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, on the other hand, pleads for a little bitty town called Zor, not on the basis of a righteous people that might be living there, but because he wants to go live there out of self-interest. Stark contrast between these two guys. Abraham chose where he would live by faith. He seems to be living by faith. And this ends, this faith journey ends with the promised son. Lot, on the other hand, chose by sight. And his journey ends in a cave with his descendants by incest. Pretty amazing contrast. Chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. <clears throat> when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and you do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to, came to sojourn, and he's become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands, these men being the angels, reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness, the angels struck with blindness, the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. It's like they dazzled them. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, 
Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest a disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it's a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like a smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the, of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which he had lived. Okay, let's go back to verse 1. <clears throat> Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the earth. Okay, these two angels are the same uh, two guys that left, Christ, or left the Lord. We, we don't really know if that was how the persons of the Trinity works out there. But we know that the Lord showed up in what seems to be human form, along with two angels that also seem to be in human form in the previous chapter to Abraham. And then the, the end of the chapter, Abraham is dialoguing with the Lord, and these two angels leave on their way to Sodom. And now here, these two angels are entering the city. It's two of the three men of the previous chapter. And it seems like the way the narrator is using men and angels interchangeably is that he wants to kind of take in two directions, both the earthly and the divine, or the earthly and the heavenly. And we tend to just think in the earthly realm. And some of us, especially with, with a very conservative background, don't even want to even think about the spiritual realm. But the spiritual realm is a very real thing. Uh, you can live in that place, too, where you're just hocus-pocus, and just scared all the time and, and talking about demons and all kind of stuff that's surrounding you all the time. And, you know, you can, found, you can find foundations for that or find passages that point toward that. But this narrator, at least in a pretty simple way, wants to kind of connect the earthly as the men and the heavenly as the angels. Just keep your finger here and then turn over to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. It's at least worth giving it just a thought to the, uh, what the narrator is, 
how he's using these terms interchangeably. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, on page 1009 of your Pew Bible or your ESV. It says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. It's like the writer of the, Hebrew, the, the book of Hebrews, we don't know who it is, but they seem to be in tune with this like this narrator is with this story. We tend to separate these two realms, but we need to realize and recognize that there are times where the heavenly realm bursts into the earthly realm. And it may look like it's earthly, but it may be a very real heavenly engagement. Okay. This word here for evening... The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. In the Hebrew word there, it means black. So it's dark. It's evening time-wise, but it's also a picture of the condition of this city. The physical darkness was an image of the spiritual condition of this city and this people. And they come into the city, and Lot is sitting at the gate of Sodom. The city gates were important in these times. There were a couple places where people hung out in a significant way. They hung out at the, the town square, kind of the center of the city, but they also hung out at the city gate. The city gate was the kind of place where people sat around, and a lot of times the, the leaders of the city would sit and discuss the political matters of the city. So the fact that Lot is sitting at the entrance to the gate points to the possibility that he may serve as some sort of leadership position in Sodom. We don't know that for sure, we know that the other people recognize him because they show up at his house and they discuss who he is. Is he our judge now? They know he's a sojourner, so he's obviously a prominent guy. They know of him. But at least we know for sure that he's sitting there at the gate. He seems to be, just by his presence at the entrance to the gate, he seems to be immersed in the affairs of the city. And when we consider what the affairs of the city are, the character of it, then you can appreciate the gravity or the danger it is to be immersed in the affairs of this city in particular. Okay, he bows down to the visitors while he seems to be immersed in the life of the city, which we'll consider that in a moment. He does seem to retain some level of hospitality and righteousness. We will at some point, I don't know if it'll be tonight, it may be later in our study tonight, consider Second Peter chapter 2, verses 6-8. through 8. I may have had y'all look at that over the course of this week, but we'll look at it at some point, where Peter refers to Lot as righteous. So there's some measure of righteousness that you'll see some movement here that'll look like righteousness. Okay, in verse 2. He bowed his face down to the earth, and he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly... So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Now the fact that Lot has a house is important. Remember where Abraham lived? In a tent. It seems like a small feature, a small fact or small detail. But there's significant meaning behind this. Look over in chapter 13 verse 12 of Genesis. And look at where Lot is living in chapter 13, verse 12. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan 
while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. So it looks like his tent was in proximity to Sodom. Looks like Lot, once he chose where he was going to go live, he moved his tent up there next to Sodom. But things have changed. Over time, he's migrated. He did away with the tent, mobility, and living like a sojourner, living like a camper, like what I mentioned last week. And he went off and bought himself a house in Sinville. That's important. That's something to think about. Because what you need to appreciate is symbolically in our Bibles, especially the New Testament picture of what it means to follow Christ, is that we are tent livers. doesn't mean that it's wicked having a house. Any of you that own a home, it's not condemning home life. But the picture for the New Testament believer is that we are pilgrims, sojourners, and aliens. And Lot's movement from being a camper, really a nomad with Abraham, to picking his property, moving his tent next to the Sin City, and then getting rid of his tent and moving into Sin City and buying a house and now sitting at the front gate show that he has become, you may have heard the phrase before, that we are to be in the world but not of the world. It looks like Lot has moved in and he has become of. A while back, whenever we uh, ordained elders, preached from, I preached from Ezra, and I don't know if you all remember that story of the Babylonian exile where the nation of Israel is taken into captivity and off into Babylon and I'm trying to remember the psalm. I know how it goes. By the ri- I know how Willie Nelson sang it. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and there we wept, remembering Zion. And that picture of Israel, it's, it's not a Willie Nelson song. That's a psalm, just so you know. Willie Nelson was singing a psalm there. And... Uh, that, that God calls men out, elders, to call a people to say, let's not build mansions in Babylon. Let's not get too comfortable in Babylon. Let's go home. Let's go move back to the city to come. And their city to come was actually new, or Jerusalem. Our, new, our Jerusalem is the new Jerusalem that we're living for. And we're to be living agile and mobile, ready to go where he sends us. Whenever we planted this church in commerce, I guess, I don't know how long ago. It, I guess it would be kind of the spring. We're probably coming up on about a year that they've been gone or it's been a really serious process. We had some people move to, move to commerce to be part of that church plan. <laughs> That's shallow roots. I mean, you, you got to love that. Okay, it looks like there's a dark corner of this community and we want to be part of a church plant there. Let's be agile and mobile. Jake and Stephanie Huck are a pretty good example of that. God's calling us to Kazakhstan. Man, we're gone. You don't have to be a missionary and sell everything you own to live like this. It just means that your dreams and your hopes look more like a kingdom sort of person. Like that email I sent out recently, that thing that John Piper had at the bottom, this economic stimulus money. The world says, I'm going to, man, I've been pining for something, boy. I'm going to go get it. And he says, this boon is an opportunity for the people of God to show that we're not living like that. We're living for the city to come. We're living for something eternal. A while back, we uh, started this whole building thing. I didn't plan on sharing this thought, but I was talking with Brad about this today. We are, uh, we'd hoped to be at about 55,000 when we started phase one of this little building project out here, this worship center. We're about 53,000 like that, something like that right now. And we want to be to 55. I mean, 
you know, because you start kind of edging off and before long, you, you know, you're not at your milestones before you say, well, let's go do it. And uh, Brad and I were talking about it. And it's just taking time. And it's just taking time. And, I, you know, I, I made the observation to Brad. I said, I don't know if our people have bought into this thing yet. as really being a um, let's be sacrificial and get this thing going. And I said, I don't know how we can squeeze another drop out of what we got. Six out of our seven adult Bible study classes meet off campus, or five out of seven. I mean, off campus. Nearly every room in this building is full of kids. And we want to turn this into kid space, too. We need it. So that's those sort of things are saying, man, we're living in tents. We're not pining for something that's going to crumble and termites are going to eat. Now, you might say, well, that's the building. That building's just a tool. It's not the tool either. It's just a necessary thing. Like if we need a new plumbing system, <laughs> just, you need it. You just go get it and move on. Don't let it become the thing. I didn't plan on sharing those thoughts on the building, but when we're talking about tent life, when we're talking about being agile and mobile and living for the city to come, I just would love the thought if Crosspoint was characterized. And, I, you know, we're growing in that, but it's kind of an ebb and a flow. You know, you see it, in, I see it in myself, too. There's some times where you're a lot more open-handed and big-hearted and open-handed than others. But it just looks like a kind of a consistent picture for the people of God that we're living like sojourners, pilgrims, aliens. We're not pining away to build mansions in Babylon. And this is just an, an illustration of that. Uh, this was just an illustration that applies to all of us. Okay, these guys, these angels, they wanted to spend the night in the town square. Let me, let me just share with you briefly before I go there. I want, this is a, a noteworthy point. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 14. I want to show you that this image of tenting and being temporary is so foundational even to belief and trust and faith in Christ that it's not just a novel idea to try and get a building built. I don't care about the stinking building. The building is just a sore topic to me right now because I, it just seemed like we just cough it up and build the thing and just move on. I don't, this is not about the building. This is about the people of God living light and agile and mobile. Listen to this passage, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I hope we've spent enough time in John where you know that that's speaking of Christ. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in the original language is the word tabernacle. Our Lord was temporary because he knew, what, he, know, he knew where He came from. Think about where we are in John 13. He knew where He was going. <laughs> That's why He could endure the cross. He's not building a mansion because He knows this is just very temporary. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be all there. I'm going to be spent for the glory of God, and I know where I'm going. He's living for the city to come, and he's tabernacling here. He's in a tent. He is a pilgrim, a sojourner, an alien, and that's to be the character of God's people. It's not an agenda. That's just who we are. Okay, these, these guys, these two angels, they want to go to the town square to sleep that night. I don't know what the norm was that day, if people would just pull up a sleeping bag and or a mat or whatever, and camp, at, camp the night in the town square. 
But he wanted to move. These guys wanted to sleep in the town square. We'll talk about Lot's response to that in a moment. But I want to ask you to consider what's our town square. Well, now, before I ask that question, what is the town square a picture of in any city? Or what's at the center of? Business, commerce, what else? Court, court, like legal matters, judicial matters. Okay, what else? In a lot of cases. Shopping? Okay, that's close to what I'm thinking of. It also starts with an S. And they kind of go together. Well, <laughs> there's another S, yeah. Put that S out there too, yeah. I was thinking kind of a social setting you know <laughs> that's very good though that's another great s but it seems like that the town square is the center of commerce and city life so it would be the appropriate place if you if someone charged you if i called you and said hey man i need you to go to quinlan now i, I need to think of a place that has a town square <laughs> see we're just in a in a different context now you know you'd almost have to go to europe Commerce, okay, I didn't spend enough time there to know what the, they have a real prominent town square, okay. If I sent you to go to, town, to, to commerce to figure out what the spiritual pulse of the community is, you want to find that hub, and especially in the old days when they didn't have internet, they didn't have garage door openers, they didn't have television, they didn't have phones, cell phones, house phones, all these things that kind of disconnect us from each other. You know, you could go to that place to really get a pulse or get your finger on the pulse of the city. Now, I was talking about this with Rhonda and Scott the other day. And this gets real personal. What's our town square? I mean, really. Even commerce, I bet, is not really the center of the life of commerce. I bet it used to be. But things are different now. Because we have those things I just mentioned. Garage door openers that also close. Television. You know, internet, all these other things that kind of draw us away from community where we are isolated, especially American culture. I mean, you go to Mexico, where's everybody? In their yards. Maybe AC is to blame. Maybe air conditioning is to blame for why we're so isolated. I don't know. You go to third world countries, man, they're all out there, all in engaging each other. Their commerce might be selling flip-flops or flip-flop repair shop. <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty simple version, but they have a town square. Ours is not like that. We don't have a physical town square anymore. That's why when we have mobile worship, what are we doing on Wednesday, the, the Wednesday before? There's no, no town square. We have to create one, and it's at their front door. Now, really, there is a town square, though. I know what, there's a couple of them. What, what do you think they might be? Walmart may be one. Yeah, that may be one. I'm not sure that that's really the center of social life. If it is, then I, I'm a real recluse then because I just can't muster the guts to go in there. I'm a Brookshire's man. That's right. Me and Brookshire's all the way. What, what are some other pictures of our town square? Where do we go with a cup of coffee to get caught up? Huh? Starbucks? Okay, y'all are all thinking physical. How about virtual? Where's our virtual town square? The internet? The forums? 
Where's another one? It may be pretty one way, but we're just kind of in the open mouth receive mode. Exactly. If you want to get your finger on the pulse of what our environment is like, where can we go? We can go to television. We can go to Internet. I guess we can go to Walmart. <laughs> Man, we're in a bad state. Real bad state. But the reason I'm taking you to that place is because I want you to consider, are we living in Sodom? It may not be Sodom yet, but it may not be far from it. If the newspaper is a picture of getting caught up on what the life of our community or the life of our world, what's going on in our world and our community, man, the newspaper is a downer. Like, are you kidding me? One page after another of just heartbreaking, terrible thing. So the reason I'm making the connection is because Second Peter makes the connection. Let's go there. I want to go ahead and show you that, just so you'll know, so I'm establishing something that from the rest of this story, while we're considering Sodom and Gomorrah and what happened to Sodom and what happened to Lot, you'll start to see yourself in some of these characters. Hopefully, you're seeing yourself in Lot. I'm thinking in this whole story that Abraham looks a lot more like Jesus because Lot wasn't saved really. Maybe there was some element of righteousness there, so the story breaks down at some point, but ultimately, no saving righteousness. Ultimately, he was saved because Lot begged for him. I mean, Abraham begged for him. Remember that in the chapter before? If there's somebody righteous there, please don't destroy the city. Now, he destroyed the city, but he did at least evacuate who he would reckon righteous, Lot and his family. But he was saved because of his relationship to Abraham. In this story, it looks Abraham looks a lot like Christ. We look a lot like Lot, and Sodom looks a lot like our world. And we're to be about the work that Lot is about, we're saying, hey, man, they're going to destroy the city. And a lot of people are like his sons-in-laws going, man, you crazy. Probably like a lot of those guys that stood around the ark while Noah and his family are building it, going, poor saps, living for a city to come. You crazy. That's a joke. I mean, that's our context. Yeah. Right. He's straddling the fence. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about how he engaged them here in a moment, but I think you're on to something there. Let me read this, this Second Peter passage. I, I'm going to start in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. <clears throat> kind of captures a good portion of this story. It also deals with a little bit of Noah. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. This is the same book where he's talking about the destruction of the world. I mean, ultimately, the, even the elements are going to be burned up. There's going to be a whole new heavens and a whole new earth. He's talking about judgment. Second Peter, Peter is taking the reader to this place, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, 
greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day by day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So here he's equating those who participate in the lust of defiling passion and those who despise authority. That gets a little uncomfortable. With the guy, the rapist of Genesis 19. I mean, that, that should alarm us. But he, he's saying, this is, man, that we're talking about Sodom all over again. That we've got to make that connection to this story and realize this isn't just some old ancient story, but this is something that is very real and is imminent. Don, you look like you're aching. Yeah, because he's traveling the fence. <laughs> he's trying to live in both worlds. He loves the city. And you can't help but wonder, do you love the trappings of the city too? Why do you want to move to Zor? I mean, he can't even bear the thought of being in the hills with God. He'd rather be in hell and he feels safer in Sodom than he does in the hills with God. But yet, in some way, he appears to be a little snapshot of the elect, maybe. Maybe a stupid elect that's having to learn the hard way. You know, which I think we all are in some ways, hopefully, learning. But um, I, think you're, I think that tension that he's feeling is pointing to what we look like if we're living in the world and we're in the world and we're trying to be of the world too. No, we're a miserable lot. We can't understand why we're miserable. Look at Lot. Uh, that, that was a play on words, wasn't it? We're a miserable lot. Look at Lot. How about that? Now, if our public square is the Internet and TV and the newspaper and Starbucks and Walmart and just these little places, these little versions that we have of the public square, while wickedness is going to use it as a place to devour these angels or to devour goodness, we need to use it as a place to publicize His glory and His grace, and all the while we have to be very cautious about imbibing in it. And man, TV is easy to pick on, y'all. It's easy to pick on, because we can sit and drink every night and say, oh, it's not affecting me, yet we're still drinking it and eating it every night. John Piper um, hadn't had a TV since he was a boy. Uh, we heard him speak at a conference. I don't know, he really, what, he's 60 now or something like that. But as a young boy, they got rid of his TV, their TV. And um, they were joking with him about He said, I know what's on TV. And he stands up and he does the Bonanza song or something. You know, that's his experience. That's his context for TV is Bonanza. You know, and that innocence, it's kind of sweet. It's kind of sweet. Christy and I were so convicted about it when we got back. I was more so than Christy. I said, okay, we're shutting down cable. And we, all we have now is snow. Every channel. It's been about a month. And that time is just filled with things that matter. You know, I thought there was going to be this expansive time for reading and, you know, coffee and talking about things eternal and 
really it's it's filled with things like that but also filled with community kind of things and family kind of things and um you know our kids didn't even miss it christy sneaks off every now and again and watches american idol or somebody at somebody else's house or something and gets caught i caught her at don's house one night <laughs> so there's no holiness by well maybe it's pursuit of holiness but there's no arrival here trust me but man just really a, a almost want to assassinate and murder this thing that this fire hose of the wick of Sodom potentially doesn't have to be there maybe some wholesome things that you can watch a few what, what do you like to watch Karen what's that show monk okay maybe monk's all right I don't know I've never watched it so we'll give monk a break okay anyway I put you on the spot tonight didn't I Okay, Lot pressed these guys strongly. Okay, they want to go spend the night in the town square. And he pressed them strong. Why do you think he's pressing them to stay with him? That's right. Man, he knows what's in store for those jokers. Dudes, you guys are going to get a beating there tonight. He's trying to kind of put it in the form of, hey, come on in here, I'll feed you, you can wash your feet, you can kick your feet up and relax, I'll take good care of you, but it seems, his urgency seems to point toward him knowing what's in store should they spend the night in a public place, and in fact, the, fa- the fact that he encourages them to get up and leave early the next morning <laughs> tells me that he's living right up in the world, and he knows it, and that's probably why he's so miserable, because he's part of it. Now, while he provides a feast for them, I mentioned this as I was reading it through, the narrator, the only real detail he gives us, he calls it a feast, but the only detail he gives us is unleavened bread, which is their version of cheap and easy. I mean, nothing impressive about that. Contrasted with Abraham, who's hustling around, let's kill the fatted lamb, let's get some bread going, let's get it all together, let's really do this up for these guys. Okay, let's look at verse 4. But before they lay down, the two... Uh, angels slash men the men of the city the men of Sodom both young and old all the people to the last man surrounded the house and they called to Lot where are the men who came to you tonight bring them out to us that we may know them let's establish right up front I I, I mentioned this last week let's go ahead and get it out there other versions of that last phrase okay they want to have relations they want to shake hands. Hey, bud. Another version? Huh? Yeah, that's a pretty good picture. It wants to have sex with them, really, is what it's pointing to. And let's see this for what it is. And the young and the old and all the people to the last man. Now, this is interesting. <laughs> the guy, I, I've got a few guys that I read and listen to when I'm studying to prepare for Genesis studies on Wednesday nights and one guy that I really get a lot out of he pointed to the reality that the fact that the young and the old and all the people to the last man seems to still be talking men you know the fact it says all the people you just can't envision like a three-year-old banging on the door let me in there you know it, it seems like it's a man thing it seems like it's the the men of the city every man young and old are there knocking on the door wanting to come in there and know these guys. And he emphasizes that, that all the men are there shows that all of those destroyed were wicked. Okay, He's showing that God is just. 
all right? But here's a question that he didn't deal with that we've got to ask. And it points back to some recent sermons that we've had. Do you think there were any three-year-olds in the city? You think there were any little boys or girls that called this wicked man daddy? Where are the wives? They're not there banging on the door, or it doesn't seem to be. It seems to be a men kind of thing. Doesn't look doesn't sound like something a woman would do anyway. But it looks like the men of the city are doing this, and all of Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed because of the wickedness of the fathers. You remember what we've dealt with recently, the sins of the fathers, the consequences for the father's sin, how they gush over onto generations afterwards? With Achan, the sin of Achan, where he took the devoted things and he buried them in the floor of his tent. And who got stoned as a result of that? Achan and who else? His whole family. Remember Korah's rebellion? Korah led these guys... Korah, I think, was a Levite. I'm trying to remember. He's one of the Levites, and he had these other families who were saying, hey, man, we all are holy. We all ought to be Levites. Why are you treating us differently? And he led this rebellion against Moses, and Moses said, hey, man, you're playing with fire. He said, okay, well, bring your little lanterns, your little worship lanterns out tomorrow, and we'll see, or your little incense lanterns, and we'll see who God is behind. And you remember what happened to those people? What happened? uh, Man, and it wasn't just Korah. It was Korah and all that who belonged to Korah. His whole family, even his cattle, his tent. And I think this picture here is yet another picture of the sins of the father being visited on generations afterwards. And we've got to deal with why, how can God get away with that? Because he's what? Okay, because he's God. What's another word, another thing that he is? Okay, he's just holy. What is he? A word I'm looking for that he has done. He's sovereign, okay? Who, who did he make? Did he make these people? He's a creator. Man, the creator, he, it's his to be a steward. He can do whatever he wants with us and still be completely benevolent, completely good. He will save who he will save. The world doesn't like that thought. Because we, we operate on a merit-based system. That's why if we really boil it down, we get to the place where something in us, if, if we don't completely surrender to the doctrines of grace or this, this complete view that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, this view that God, that grace has reached down to the complete undeserving, there's not, there's not even a kernel in me that rates being saved. Unless you surrender to that, then what you're sitting here thinking is there's something in here, something in me that rates the gospel, that rates being saved. But viewing this and realizing that God is creator and God will save who, save who he will save puts you in a place where you go, oh man, he's sovereign, he's creator. And it just, it helps you deal with images like this where you're asking these sort of hard questions. What happened to three-year-olds? They died. Same thing happened to the firstborn of Egypt. They died. And how can, they, how can God do that? How can he get away with it? Because he is creator. The world doesn't like that kind of God because they like the Santa God that sits around in an old man t-shirt scratching and says, come on up in my lap, boy. Our God is not like that. 
He doesn't play favorites. We know he's not choosy. Or we know he doesn't play favorites. He doesn't show favoritism. But he is choosy. He is eclectic. The church is made up of the elect. And the church, the Greek name for the church is the, elect, uh, the ecclesia. It's, the, it's an eclectic gathering. People gathered from all, corner, all four corners and all people groups. He's saying, I'm saving Lot. <laughs> I'm saving Jacob. <laughs> Why not Esau? Esau at least worked for his money, worked for a living. Jacob was a little liar. God is about picking and choosing the foolish things of the world, to confound the wise. Where the wise are sitting there going, that doesn't make sense. You're going, exactly. Grace is hard to explain. <laughs> we all have dirt, though. We all deserve to die. So the fact that he saves anyone is a remarkable work of grace. The fact that any of us breathe, take a breath, is a remarkable work of grace. Okay, what's the sin that these guys have fallen to in Sodom? Let's, let's get it out in the open tonight. What is it? Okay, what else? Rape. Two things that, that you're seeing right here. I mean, we want to rape those guys. That's essentially what these guys are after. Homosexuality and rape. I want to take you to Romans chapter 1. I have heard preachers over the ages of my little snapshot. I say ages. My, I'm not that old. But over the years, handle homosexuality from the point of view of the Pharisee who's praying next to the tax collector who's praying. Saying, at least I'm not like that joker. I sure am glad I'm not a homosexual. And making homosexuals just look like, I mean, like making us feel better about ourselves because we're not like those guys. That is a very poor handling of the issue of homosexuality. And in many ways, people have dismissed the church because of that argument. I know that God's sovereign, and I know that People won't walk away from the faith just because of a poor argument. But I want to handle the argument rightly. And Romans chapter 1, verse 26. Actually, I'll back up to verse 18 just for the sake of context. Handles, shows what's, it, what's happening when homosexuality is happening. It's a biblical argument for God's view on homosexuality. If you want to see it, it's right here. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now here's where it really gets important. He's talking about these people that have rejected the truth about God claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles here's what's happening in homosexuality but it's not just homosexuality it just homosexuality is a prominent picture of it here's what's happening Verse 24 says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to, the, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they, this is, this is such a sweet verse to memorize, because we do this often. When we sin, this is what we're doing. 
because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what sin is. However small, however great, you're trading the truth about God for a lie and you worship and serving the creature rather than the creator. So whenever you say, hey man, (laughs) I know that God's design is that you know, we should save sex for marriage, but I got needs. You know what you're doing there? You're saying, I'm putting creature in a place of creator. I'm putting creature's design, namely me and my needs, in a place of God's design. And that's just an example. We do it all day long. <laughs> all of us do it. It doesn't dismiss it. Say, okay, well, whatever. May it never be that that gives us an escort into sin. But it helps us understand the anatomy of sin. Essentially, the bottom line of what sin is, every sin, sin of pride. You know, I had somebody ask me the other day, what do you think the, the root of all sin is? And he was coming at it from the direction of it's pride. And I said, no, it's not pride. The root of all sin is trading the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the root of all sin. And here's what Paul uses as the example, like the Billboard example of trading the truth about God for a lie and worship and serving the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. What are they talking about? And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That's homosexuality. I'm not coming at it from the direction that at least we're not like those jokers. But man, let's deal squarely with the issue of homosexuality. We have people in our body that have homosexual brothers or sisters or family members in our body. So it hits close to home. Some of y'all may know someone who's homosexual. Dude, I've seen them on TV back when we had it. (laughs) We still have a TV. Back when we had cable. They're creative. They're funny. It's almost like watching a car accident. You're like, I can't take my eyes off of it. There's something in me that just kind of wants to watch the train wreck of the conundrum of personality traits that's in, you know, this flamboyant homosexual. And I'll be real honest with you. (laughs) The very few that I've known, they were so interesting and so honest and genuine, I kind of enjoyed them. So I'm not coming at it from the direction, at least we're not like those jokers. But I will come at it from the direction of sin. And it is sin. It is like the, I'm trying to think of the word I'm looking for. It's like a banner. It's like the epitome of trading the truth about God for a lie. What's the word I'm looking at for, pit, for, for epitome or the banner example? The post, it, it's the poster sin. That's a good example. Well, that's not what I was looking for, but that's a good example. It's the poster sin for trading the truth about God for a lie. But in case people think we're picking on homosexuals, let's read it a little bit further. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, these who traded the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. They were filled with evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Uh, oh, it's getting real uncomfortable now, Right? Anybody who says that we're giving homosexuals a beating tonight needs to say, oh, we're also giving kids that are disobedient to parents a beating. 
and the foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless that come after that. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Man, let's deal biblically with homosexuality. Lovingly, <laughs> man, I want to love that person with the gospel. I really do, but I don't even want to give a hint of condoning what they're doing. Nor would I want to give a kid a hint of condoning what they're doing when they disobey their parents. They're both sin. Paul does seem to emphasize homosexuality as a pretty prominent example of trading the truth about God for a lie. Okay. I think what we're going to do tonight is, sh is shut down right there. We didn't get near as far as I thought we would, but we... Uh, Given that this is a picture of the world, given that it's a, this, this story about Lot and Sodom, given that it's a picture of the gospel, this is a picture of the end times, it's a picture of judgment and grace and all those things, let's just savor it. Let's just take our time with it. We'll pick up in verse 6 next week. And uh, I'll just tell you, just kind of briefly, if you want to do a little studying beforehand, you can jot these passages down, that Sodom was not just guilty of homosexuality and rape. That was not the only thing that was going on there in, in town. These passages you can jot down, Isaiah 1, verses 10 and 17. Isaiah 1, verses 10 and 17. That Sodom is a picture of social oppression. Another passage is Jeremiah 23, 14. In Sodom, you'll see adultery. Jeremiah 23, 14. Is that what I said? I thought I said 27, 14. I thought I caught myself. 23, 14, Jeremiah. You'll, you'll see that they're guilty of adultery, lying, and abetting the criminal. Ezekiel 16, 49 refers to Sodom as a place that's also dealing with arrogance, complacency, and showing no pity on the needy. So that it wasn't like they just had this singular sin. It was just like a homosexual community. There was lots of sin going on there, which is normally the case. <laughs> sin begets sin. Low view of God begets low view of God. Trading the truth about God for a lie begets trading the truth about God for a lie and begets all those, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. ruthless. <laughs> There's consequences for trading truth about God for a lie. We'll deal with the rest of this um, next week, or at least the next few verses. We'll savor it. So I encourage you to read ahead, take notes, chew on things. If you have questions, you can fire them off during the week. Does anybody have questions tonight based on anything they've heard? Marie. Buffoon. I don't think so. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
Yeah, I don't think so. I think that second Peter picture is just a sweet. Maybe if anything, you're seeing the continuum of faith. Between Abraham on one end, you know, if we're not going to look at it, you know, you look at it like the gospel where Abraham is a, a type of Christ, just like Noah was a type of Christ, just like the ark was a type of the cross. You know, you look for Christ in the OT, you see, okay, well, Abraham is looking a lot like Christ here. Don't look a couple of chapters back where he's off in Egypt or something, or, you know, with Hagar or something silly like that. Just for the snapshot in this story itself, he looks christ-like in terms of his relationship to lot and what happens to lot this knucklehead buffoon i'm seeing myself in lot as the dirty footed guy that like peter that's sitting there getting his feet washed you know by the 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 one true innocent (laughs) the the king of kings and lord of lords i'm seeing myself more in lot than in abraham um I understand what you're looking for, where you're going there, but I think looking at it through the lens of Second Peter, that's probably the only way to. That's probably the only thing to interpose on it would be that that approach to the gospel story. Good question, though. I understand why you're asking it. Any others? All right, some heavy stuff we're digging in up here, and when Sodom's getting destroyed, we're not going to take that lightly. When Lot is being rescued, we're not going to take that lightly. This is our story. I want you all to own this story. It's grace, mercy. When you're reading ahead, look at what the angels do with Lot. I mean, really, look at every single thing that the angels do with Lot and just make a little list of those things. And then we'll consider next week what God has done with us in the gospel. Okay, let me pray. God, thanks for this sweet time together tonight. We are so thankful for this treasure of an illustration and story that tells us so much about the gospel. Lord, I'm thankful that, um, that you are the sort of God that will grab and pull and arrest us and grip us and restrain us and pull us out of Sodom. I'm recognizing that we all have dirty feet, that no one is righteous, no, not one, that the best we have to offer you is filthy rags, and I'm seeing us in lot. And I pray that as a result of us feasting on this story together, that we will just see just yet another picture of grace and mercy. We'll have a better understanding of how low grace reached. We'll worship more, that we'll marvel more at what a gracious, awesome God you are. Thank you so much for this time together tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.